Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we have a discussion with Vivian Climate, whose film No Straight Lines, The Rise of Queer Comics. This is part of our series on films that we'll be showing at the Palm Springs International Film Festival. This is a terrific film about its subject, as you might guess, The Rise of Queer Comics, and it discusses sort of the origins of queer comics in the era post the birth of alternative comics in the 60s and 70s. It focuses on five queer comic artists and then also a few of the next generation after them. It's also in some ways a history of the queer community in that time period but it has a very light touch. It's meaningful and it discusses some tough topics, but it also is fun. Yeah, she talks about pathos and humor. I think in the interview we did with her and the film really, it's quite emotional, but it's also funny. It has a light touch when it needs to and goes into darker places as well. Doing a multi-portraiture with five primary characters, that's a lot of balls to have in the air at once. She manages to do justice to all of those stories. And then she also weaves in this intergenerational aspect with Next Gen Comics, which I thought added a whole other dimension. And as she talks about in the interview, really brings in a youthful audience to her film. One of the things that Vivian is most known for is for being a collaborator of the acclaimed filmmaker Marlon Riggs, who died of AIDS in 1994. He, of course, is best known for Tongues Untied, Ethnic Notions, and Color Adjustment. Color Adjustment was produced by Marlon and Vivian. She did talk about Marlon in the interview just a bit. I, I really felt like this is a film that, in some ways, is kind of a legacy of the kinds of films that Marlon ushered in in the 90s. Vivian Kleiman is the executive producer of the Academy Award-nominated documentary short, Last Day of Freedom. With film partner Marlon Riggs, they garnered the George Foster Peabody Award, the Organization of American Historians Eric Barnow Award, and the International Documentary Association's Outstanding Achievement Award. Finally, Vivian has seven co-productions with ITVS for national PBS broadcasts. No Straight Lines had its world premiere at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival. Since then, it has screened at dozens of festivals, an incredibly diverse range of festivals, including Sheffield DocFest and AFI Docs. It won the Grand Jury Prize for Documentary Feature at OutFest Los Angeles. The film will screen at the Palm Springs International Film Festival on Sunday, January 9th, Monday, January 10th, and Sunday, January 16th. Be sure to check out the Palm Springs International Film Festival website at psfilmfest.org for details about the screenings. Coming up, our discussion with Vivian Kleiman about No Straight Lines, The Rise of Queer Comics. Vivian, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Hi, Vivian. Congratulations on No Straight Lines. Great film. Thank you so very much, Ken. Why do you make documentary films? I did not get into it for the uh, money, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, I would have to say that documentary filmmaking is, for me, a vital way to try to make the world a slightly better place. While I'm completely invested in the aesthetics and completely devoted to trying to make documentary films that have high production value when appropriate, but have impactful stories to tell, I really feel that as an art form, it functions in a really potent way to reach a wide audience and get people to think about the world in a slightly different way. I couldn't help but ask, are you a comics fan? And... Which cartoonists have you followed in your life? I'd have to say that my coming out experience as a lesbian was directly aided by one particular comic strip, and that was Alison Bechtel's Dykes to Watch Out For. And I think almost all lesbians coming out at the time, everyone I knew would run to grab the newspaper. I think it came out twice a month, and we would run to see what happened with Alison's characters. The notion of having a comic strip dedicated to lesbian life, not only lost love and bad hair days, but, you know, the demonstrations protesting the war and the political scene at, at the moment, 
was so vital. It was enlivening to have our own stories represented in print that it, it, words failed to express the power that it had. That queer comic strip helped shape who I am today. Allison is one of your five main characters in the film. How did you narrow it down to these five primary characters? Ken, you've directly landed on the challenge. Justin Hall's anthology of the history of queer comics includes 70 different artists. Some documentary filmmakers might have done uh, a collection of 70 different artists, a minute to each person, but I was dedicated to really getting a more intimate sense of who these people were and how their lives evolved, as well as their art. Normally, I would have narrowed it down to three artists, but that was completely impossible. <laughs> and narrowing it down to five, the first person who definitely was on the list was Rupert Kennard, because he was a friend of my film partner and friend, Marlon Riggs. And Rupert actually contributed to Marlon's landmark work, Tongues Untied. So I knew Rupert from way back when, from dance parties and fun times in Marlon's home. And then I knew Mary Wings because her house in San Francisco often hosted lesbian parties. At, uh, <laughs> so she was the person who published the, the first known out queer comics by a lesbian. Then after that, it, it became difficult to narrow down who to include and who not to include. And I can only say that in an age of the internet and websites, we intend to expand the website to give the spotlight to some of the folks who were not able to be profiled in the film. One of the really interesting directions you took with the film is you, you tell an intergenerational story. Right from the start, we see this kind of Hollywood squares-like grid of next-gen comics who both comment on your sort of primary characters and also tell a bit of their own stories. Why did you decide to go this route? I didn't actually start out with the intention of having it be so intergenerational. Since we were starting in the early 70s with Mary Wings, I was adamant that the film was going to go not a day further beyond Alison Bechtel, her triumph of her graphic novel, Fun Home, when it was honored in 2006 as Time Magazine Book of the Year. Can you imagine a lesbian graphic memoir on the cover of Time Magazine? I couldn't imagine anything beyond that in the film. And besides, that was already many decades of history to cover. But as I sat back and watched the first rough cut, I felt like something was missing. I felt like, yeah, these are interesting stories. Yeah, this is pretty much more or less my generation. And I knew that it would be a nostalgic romp for people who grew up with Howard Cruz and Jen Camper's work, et cetera. But I wanted it to reach a younger generation. I was bothering to spend all this effort and time uh, and money to reach a new generation and have them have access to the things that I did not have when I grew up, which were images of queer people telling our stories of facing challenges and overcoming the obstacles that we faced. I realized that I had to include young people in some form, but I also knew that I couldn't profile any more than these five. So I did an experiment one day. I had several of these young next-gen artists go in front of the camera and talk about their lives. I had 10 minutes for each artist. <laughs> I didn't know their work. I didn't know who they were. I just started talking with them. And at the end of the day, it was clear that this was really rich material, that this young generation had stories to tell that were profound and important. I had no idea how I was going to use them. When we went back into the edit room and started to play with them like Legos, moving the little pieces around, it soon became apparent that our challenge was to find a way to make these stories work. It took effort. It took several iterations. <laughs> but eventually, I think that it augmented the original concept in a way that I never could have envisioned at the outset. You know, it's amazing. Of course, I'm moved by documentary films all the time, but this is one of the few times I'm really moved by the process. It's really impressive and just moving to hear you talk about your commitment to wanting to tell this story to a younger generation and then pulling back from the rough cut and saying, okay, how can we do this and taking a day to experiment that just blows me away. 
I have to say, Ken, it was an, an expensive day. <laughs> an expense, but well worth it. That's the joy of being an independent filmmaker. There's no strings attached. Some funders restrict you to only funding this phase or that phase, but I was lucky to have support. Mostly the support came from Kickstarter or individuals. So we had the latitude and the freedom to take that risk. Obviously, in telling a, a story about a graphic medium, your own visual style is something that you have to take very seriously. It seems like you you use some different approaches. Sometimes it's kind of a more of a rough and ready way of presenting comic book covers. Other times you use animation. How did you come up with your visual style for, for the film? It was a, an organic process. Working with the idea of being very clear as to who my targeted audience was. I, I needed to create an aesthetic that would invite a young person to care about watching the film. And actually the hardest part was the opening of the film. How do you invite somebody who knows nothing about the subject when you're not profiling one person, when you're not telling the story of one event, when you're not chronicling one disease or one problem that we face, be it environment, whatever, overpopulation. The Solution, I think, was a combination of really interesting storytelling, choosing people who were good storytellers, wanting the form of the film itself to reflect the content. One day I reached over to my shelf to look at one of Allison's publications. She did these small little collections of her work. And I saw on the cover that she had a black frame around the image. It didn't fully cover, the image wasn't contained within the frame, it was superimposed over most of the image, but not all. And I realized, oh, that black frame signifies, it's a signifier of comics. And you refer to it as Hollywood squares, but you know, which it is like, but we, we animated that line and gave it a little more life. So using little techniques like that, I think help shape the film in a way that was different from a straightforward telling of the story. We also took liberties. I was very much committed to not having it be a chronological story, even though we're telling a history. So it inherently has to have a certain chronology within it. I could have done it thematically. I chose not to. But I punctuated that chronology with a certain side excursions, let's say, exploring the notion of the means of production, how the changes in technology impacted the construction of images, for example, how changes in technology and the internet impacted how does an artist sustain their work in an age of Amazon and Barnes and Noble, for example. I think that it was a, a, a melange of experiments and trying to construct something that had the flavor of the subject matter of comic books. And I might add, I'm an old school person who thinks that people's stories are really fascinating. We have that phrase, talking head documentary. Well, it's a pejorative phrase, but I actually love people talking. I'm fascinated by what they say. I have no problem whatsoever with listening to folks telling a great story. I think it's all about storytelling in service of some greater good. And that's my goal as a filmmaker. You do have a historical spine to the film that works quite well. As you say, you punctuate it or puncture it a little bit. So comics underwent serious censorship in the 1950s. Comics code arose that really restricted things in terms of sex, drugs, and violence especially. Then came the underground comics of the 1960s and 70s, which got around this code by being distributed in places like head shops. It really broke things open. And it really seems like this was both an inspiration to early queer comic artists, and yet they rejected some of the ethos that we might see, say, in the comics of R. Crumb. I'm glad that you went there because most people don't engage on, in, in that discussion. I have to say, first of all, how surprised and delighted I was when both Howard Cruz and Alison Bechtel spoke highly of Robert Crumb. They spoke highly of Robert Crumb because of his artistry, because of the mastering of the pen and paper that his work portrays. At the same time, the contents of his work, it was so offensive to feminists, to people of color. It's just shocking, the images that he popularized. The notion of being an underground artist and being gay 
at that time in the late 60s, early 70s, I find completely fascinating that to be marginalized in the underground <laughs> scene for being queer is quite a thought. I think that breaking through that, as Mary Wings was describing, sitting down on her couch one day, having had it with other people misrepresenting uh, our lives, her life in particular, and wanting to do a corrective, it's a really strong moment. What's the message? The message is that you can just sit down and tell your own story. You don't need training. You, you don't have to have any kind of expertise in art. And you can just have that power of passion and that desire to, you know, correct uh, a mistake, really. I find that to be like one of the most powerful parts of the whole film. Actually, I find it to be the message of the whole film, that you can give it as much artistry and training as you want, but you can also just sit down, take a pen, take your stylus and go at it. What I find especially tickling, I didn't get to include this in the film, but I'm going to sneak this story in right now. The young people that I spoke with, I, I remember walking into a room where there was a bunch of them waiting for an event to start. And they all had sketchbooks and they were all drawing. Like these are people in their 20s, early 20s. And um, I'm going, hey, why are you using a sketchbook and a pen? And they looked at me like, what's the question? Of course, you have to have a pen in your hand. Yes, later on, I might digitize it and, and add on to it. But still, there's that sense, that extraordinary need of tactile, holding a pen in your hand, having paper and drawing. Uh, I just thought that was astonishing, actually. You talk about Mary Wings, one of the pioneers in this area. And as she was trying to correct crumbs, she calls it sexism. Some might call it misogyny. And I said, this is an admirer of his artistry, but I'm troubled by him in many ways. And yet she also had this very, I thought it was really touching. Another way she wanted to improve the world, which she said, look, life is boring. It gets repetitive. I wanted other lesbians to be able to sit down in their chair and enjoy this incredible, insane story and take a journey with me, knowing they have to go to work tomorrow. I, I love that story. The few opportunities I've had in the age of COVID to watch the film with an audience, that's when they really laugh, <laughs> no matter who they are. It's the freedom that she's exuding, the sense of to hell with convention. She really basically is sending the message out Feel free to tell your own stories. Up until recently, queer cartooning existed, I guess, in a kind of parallel universe to the rest of comics, you know, in gay newspapers, gay bookstores, etc. No one asks to be marginalized, right? But do you think this had the effect of creating an insular but creatively free and uncensored artistic scene that actually supported these artists and their visions? Yeah, I think that the rise of queer comics certainly went hand in hand with the rise of queer life. I'm, I'm focusing on life in the U.S., so my comments are about the U.S., but certainly as we developed our own institutions in the queer world, uh, our own bookstores and cafes and neighborhoods, or you know, our own ghettos, they really functioned as a way to not just protect us from outside world and, and all the challenges that we face in our daily life, but also to nourish and support and create health clinics, for example, that were sensitive to our needs. So I think that the rise of queer comics certainly reflects that sense of insularity and the benefits of creating those safe environments. For example, Frameline in the City that was held every year at the Castro Theater in the middle of the Castro community, and people would come from all parts of the U.S., rural U.S., they would come in June for two weeks to have their vacation so they could be free, so they could walk down the street holding hands with their sweeties. And it's sad on the one hand that they have to fly around the country to enjoy that freedom. At the same time, isn't it wonderful that we had those safe spaces for that to happen? And it, these days, things have evolved and we have emerged from the need of those uh, ghettos, as it were. We have the internet that is bringing us together. And queer comics on the internet are taking a whole new shape, very different from the kinds of images that were created by queer comic book artists in the 80s. And that's a reflection of how we've changed. And, and it's really exciting. I wanted to go back to the structure of the film and ask you about how you decided to introduce Alison Bechtel. She doesn't come into the film until about 20 minutes in. 
but she's obviously probably the biggest name you've got. Fun Home, you mentioned being on the cover of Time magazine. And you also mentioned how important she was to you personally, her work. How did you decide when and how you were going to introduce Allison? As I said, the notion of structuring the film was predicated on the desire to not have a a completely chronological story. So my structure was step one, find a way to make a young person curious to want to engage with the film, to hang in there with the film. Step two was to start to let the viewer know that this isn't a story about any one individual that it's a story of, that's profiling five individuals who had very separate stories. This isn't like a group, you know, <laughs> that would have been a lot easier to structure. So Allison coming in a little bit later in the film is basically a function of the fact that she's kind of second generation. She's the generation behind Mary Wings and Howard Cruz and Rupert also is in that first generation. And the active in the 70s. And then along come Jen Camper and Allison following them. To be honest, Ken, had I chosen to profile Allison Bechtel, the funding would have come like that. <laughs> but that would have been doing a disservice to the story. I could have used her as the spine. And then the backstory is, here are these individuals and we move forward. These are the folks that got influenced by her. But I didn't really want to do that. I resisted that temptation. To be honest, it was not necessarily a decision that I consciously made. But in hindsight, I can see how I was ruminating and wanting it to be more reflecting of what I described earlier, that this is a community of people and to profile one, to make it the story of Alison Bechtel would be doing a disservice to the true story, which is this is a community that emerged And isn't that amazing? (laughs) I think it works really well. Another thing that I think works really well is I love the way that you go into these artists' homes. You do it in such a nice, casual way. We get a sense of who they are at home without any feeling of intrusiveness. Can you talk about that easy way that you decided to go into their homes and how you decided to approach shooting those more observational sequences. That's the word that I uh, use myself, observational footage. I was describing the difficulty of raising funds for this film. I also, at the same time, I'm describing ways in which I indulged in spending more money than some of my colleagues would have. I did that experiment I described earlier of filming young people who I had no idea who they were and what their work was. Total crapshoot. Could have failed entirely. I indulged by having the same cinematographer on all the shoots, Andy Black, amazing Andy Black from San Francisco. We paid to have him be the cinematographer for the entire film for the continuity of aesthetic, the same camera, the same eyes. He knew the story as it was building. He's an amazing DP. But at the same time, we only had two days of shooting, which isn't a whole lot for telling these stories. So I had to be very clear at the outset what my theme was, what my goal was, what I was including, what I was not including. And I knew that part of what I was going to offer the viewer that was special and unique were two things. One was the close-ups of the artists at work. That moment of Lucy Allison with her pen touching up a piece that she had worked on earlier. It's just delicious. And Andy's lighting and framing is incredible. At the same time, I wanted to give the viewer as much of a sense of these artists' environments as I could. That meant with Howard going out with his dog and bumping into the neighbor's goat, (laughs) for example. (laughs) It meant with Allison, she lives at the top of a mountain in Vermont. She's completely addicted to exercise, witness her most recent publication. And so catching her on a bike ride was really great. I had always hoped we could return and film her snowshoeing and cross-country skiing because she loves winter sports. And there she is in Vermont, but we didn't have the funds to go back and indulge in an extra shoot. So some of it was born out of necessity and some of it was taking risks and really taking advantage of being an independent filmmaker. Can you talk just briefly about Alison Bechdel's spreadsheet 
what was that about? That was so fascinating. I gotta say, you guys are the best. <laughs> this is by far the best interview I've had. Ken will tell you I love spreadsheets. Me too. Aren't they a great invention? So here's the deal. There are many things that are curious about that spreadsheet. It was actually Jen Camper who said, you got to have Allison send you her spreadsheet. I went, just like you were saying, Mike, spreadsheets. Ooh, I love spreadsheets. Let's see Allison's spreadsheet. And then she goes, Viv, you don't want to see this. This is just a spreadsheet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> This is not interesting. This is not art. And when I saw it, it was like, oh, right. It's a spreadsheet. There's texts going across the top. There's categories going across the left side. And there's all kinds of stuff in the middle, but it's all boxes and texts. And what am I going to do with this? I asked her if I could do some animation. I talked about it with my friend, Suzanne, who did the animation on the film. And Suzanne had all these ideas about, oh, we could do this, we could do that, they could blah. And so I touched base with Allison and Allison being as fastidious uh, a historian, as it were, of her world. Uh, she's a true chronicler of the precise elements of her world, as was Howard Cruz also, by the way. If there was a radio in the background and it was a certain year, that radio had to be the model of that year. Allison said, no deal. You can't make any changes. You have to leave everything as is. I said, oh, shoot, what are we going to do? <laughs> so in the end, Allison winked and okayed. I did send her uh, uh, an example of a little bit of change that we did. We added some color. We enlarged the letters and we had them zoom in, zoom out a little bit. It was very modest in terms of putting some movement on a very static image. But I knew that had to be in the film. Once I had that in my hands, I knew that had to be in the film because it's concrete evidence of how rational a thinker she is while at the same time, how extraordinarily free she is, free associating ideas and stories and creating these situations that she would say, no, she's not creating them. She's just listening to the world around her and you know, being like a good stenographer in, in a way. That's what she would say, but I think she's too modest. So I think that notion that, as she says, the stories just emerge on their own because you have one column with the names of the characters, one column with different events that were going on in the world. And then Bango, you just follow the quadrant, as it were, and you've got your story. It's a delicious revelation of the inner machinations of a very creative person. And I want to say, I get to be the uh, educator, the film educator, having taught at Stanford film program for a long time. Those who command a structure in their art are those who can take the most liberties and abandon that structure and be very, very successful in doing so. And it's a curious thing. The same is true with Marlon's Tongues and Tide. I'll continue that as the case study, as it were. And the same is true to Jackson Pollock. It's hard to explain to people, but I think that that spreadsheet that Allison used to tell 20 years plus of events in the life of Dykes to Watch Out For speaks to. It's brief, but it's extremely important we actually see the partners of two of your artists. We see Howard's husband, Eddie. We also meet Rupert's partner, Scott. Can you talk about why you chose to include these two partners? To be honest, I would have included everyone's partners. Mary, at the time anyway, did not have a partner. Jen's partner declined to be on camera, although we did snag her kissing Jen goodbye as we were leaving for Coney Island, but it would be unfair to have included that. <laughs> And Allison's partner also declined to be filmed. Curious that the lesbians didn't want to participate <laughs> and, and the men were more exhibitionist. Hmm, does that, is that a stereotype? For me, actually, it was very important to show their lives and include their partners. That moment of Howard and Eddie sitting down with their TV tables and having their coffee and bagel. For me, it's so precious and so vital. It's about showing the world we are just people, <laughs> you know, we are no different, really. We are just as ordinary people are in the heterosexual world. This thing about gay lifestyle, it's a complete corrective to that phrase, gay lifestyle. And, and the minute that they come on screen at that moment, the entire audience, in the few times they've been able to watch the film with an audience, they erupt with laughter. It's just a joy. 
Howard had done a comic when he was younger about two older gay men. And here it's almost like that vision he had is coming true. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? He really captured it entirely. He understood what it meant to span the ages, even when he was young. You do run the emotional gamut here. There's joy, as you describe, but there's also a pretty long sequence on AIDS, about 30 minutes in, and it's mostly carried by Jennifer Camper with some comments from Howard as well. There's this incredible moment when you're interviewing Jennifer and she says, I don't know if I can do this. She gets out of the chair and then she says, I know I can't do this. And you choose to keep the camera rolling for the longest time. And then I presume it's you. You go around the chair and hug her. We only see the two of you from the chest down. It's just an extraordinary sequence. Can you talk about shooting that and just being in the room with Jennifer? Ken, I I am intrigued by your descriptive. First of all, I did not make a decision to continue filming. Uh, All credit is to those marvelous people who I had the wisdom to invite to film and record sound. Andy Black, again, we've been working together. We come from a similar aesthetic relationship. He is the one without a word spoken who kept the camera going. I had the joy and delight to finally, after many years of trying to work with her, and she was always busy, the sound recordist extraordinaire, Judy Karp, who has worked with Jonathan Demme and Michael Moore and all kinds of amazing people. She kept recording sound or her separate system. So it was a confluence of these two very experienced, I'm gonna say filmmakers, who kept without a word amongst the three of us kept recording Jen was out of the room. And that actually was not my tush that you got to see hugging Jen. That's Justin Hall, who was a longstanding friend of Jen's. And he and Jen together created the Queers and Comics Conference. It's Justin who got up, didn't know you're not supposed to go in front of the camera. (laughs) And Andy didn't move the camera framing. So we see from waist down, two people hugging and Jen sobbing. The other thing I want to say about that moment is I struggled with it. For the longest time in Rough Cuts, there was only the sync sound of Jen crying. That's it. No music. And it was beautiful. Why did I add music? I could never find a way to edit the film from the section about AIDS to what follows, which is punk rock, the punk scene and zines. The two have such different tempos and relationships and tones. And sometimes that's what you seek in a cut, that difference to highlight what's going on. And I tried and tried to highlight that difference and make it work. And no matter what we did, working with the difference or trying to tone it down, it didn't work until we put music over what had been a very quiet moment of grief. And so contrary to my aesthetics, dictate, which would be less music is better. That's a scene that actually required the bigger volume in order to then meet what was following in the next chapter. It was a very curious process. The fairly long sequence about AIDS in the film, I just wanted to ask you why it was important to you to give that as much screen time as you did and to really make it an important part of the film. The section on AIDS does occupy a fair amount of real estate in this narrative. It happened in an organic kind of a way. It wasn't like I sat down and thought, oh, there's a corrective here, and I got to be the one who needs to take the time in this film. No, there's been so many great documentaries about AIDS and its impact on the queer community. I did not need to add anything else. However, Jen Camper did add a whole new perspective on it. And I used that moment of Jen explicating the queer artist's response to the AIDS epidemic on two levels. One, I use it to talk about the range of reactions to HIV and to the plague on artists, on queer artists. And for me, I don't know of any other film that's speaking about both the pathos and the humor that we're living side by side, along with the whole arc of everything else in between, the whole spectrum of emotions, all were represented in a diversity of 
queer comics. At the same time, I was an art history major in college. And for me, it was an opportunity finally to just dive into the art itself and to look at the diversity of taking one topic, one theme, and seeing how it was handled differently by different artists. I would have liked to have spent more time looking at the evolution of the artistry itself. I was able to suggest it and imply it, but I wasn't able to really go in and explicate and go into detail. And so that AIDS section offered the opportunity to really shine a different spotlight on the experience. I was quite surprised to learn that my assistant editors didn't have a clue as to what those quilts were about. I said, so you don't know about the AIDS quilt? No, what's that? So it's a whole generation that already, <laughs> right here behind us, that isn't aware of some of those milestones that we just thought was benchmarks of our lives that we thought would never vanish. So there's a certain amount of what I call the backstitch in telling history and documentaries where you kind of go back, but you don't want to like go into it too much because there's been so many films already done on the subject, but just enough so that the viewer isn't lost entirely. Once I had that realization that a young generation was no longer familiar with the phrase AIDS quilt, I then went back even further to Stonewall. I used a couple of still photos, but instead of using the handful of images that we do have, I actually commissioned an artist to tell the story through comics. And I thought that kind of liberated us from the familiar and enlivened it a little bit. Did you show any cuts of the film to your primary characters and get any feedback from them? That's one thing that I don't do. I know some people do for various reasons, either for accuracy, for safety, for clarity, but I chose not to. I did show it to just a few people who are in the world of comics. I wanted to make sure that it rang true. And even though Justin Hall is an expert, I still needed the outsider review. I'm very careful about who I share the work in process with. Like I have to say that it's thanks to one, one person who gave feedback that we closed the film in a very surprising way. The film, even though it's a chronological film, mostly, the last story of the film took place in the 90s, even though the film ends much later. Is that the story about Rupert and the card? Yes. It's an incredible scene. Actually, for our listeners who may not have seen the film, would you mind describing what happens in that scene? Rupert Kennard who did the first comic strip by and about Black gay folks, had an accident and was hospitalized. He, at one point, received a package from Alison Bechtel, and he opens up the package. In it, there's a card from Alison wishing him uh, a speedy recovery kind of a thing. And it ends up being uh, a box of cards from uh, a whole panoply of artists, queer and not queer. It's just a remarkable moment of community and connection. What I love about that is that all these artists drew their get well greetings to Rupert. And in each one, you see the diversity of styles that each artist has. It's just remarkable. You know? <laughs> it caps the film in many different ways, both in the sense of community that it offers and also in the sense of you can begin to identify the different uh, artists by their work just visually. And so I think it's a delightful place to end the film. By the way, I thought, oh, this is the film I'm going to get through without crying. And then, nope, it got me at the end. Rupert and his earlier years mainly drew superheroes, largely white superheroes, and then influenced by the confidence and artistry and beauty of Muhammad Ali and later Joe Lewis, he changes and he decides that he can draw black people, he can draw people like him. Can you talk about that sort of awakening? Yeah, I'm going to talk about Rupert's description of that moment that he realized that he was always drawing white people. He, a black man, was always drawing white characters. And I'm going to connect it with that moment in the interview with Alison Bechtel when she says that she was always drawing men. You know, it's like, what the heck is going on here? It's just a perfect example of how we are shaped by the forces around us and how if there ever was a question about does media impact us, heck, there we are in those two people telling 
stories that are not their own stories. It's a remarkable moment for each of them. It's a moment of self-revelation, self-awareness. It's a moment about recognizing one's talent in drawing men for Allison and white folks for Rupert. And it's also a moment of extreme liberation. I wanted to ask about anger. Rupert, he's injured in a terrible car crash. He loses the use of his legs. At one point, he says, there's anger about the way you're treated and how it affects you. That makes it fascinating for me to see how you represent that in your work. It seems to me like cartoonists, at least good ones, are really good at expressing anger. Is there something unique about this medium that lends itself to expressing anger, often but not always with humor? I love that question. That's a, a delicious way of thinking about have, queer comics. <laughs> have at it, Vivian. I think you really named it. I think that what is unique about queer comics is that if you look at the images in No Straight Lines, there are a few superheroes. Rupert was drawing superheroes that are queer. But by and large, these are real images of real people. They might be exaggerated. They might be extremely funny or extremely distorted for Jen's badass conception of the world. But they're really rooted in real stories of real people. And I think that what these artists were doing was having the freedom to just speak what was on their minds and to use the vernacular of this particular art form of words and images, usually linear, usually black and white, as a way to just say what's on their mind, uncensored. It was an uncensored art form. And that was rather unusual at the time, as we were talking about earlier, there had been the comics code that explicitly censored the kinds of images that could be sold on magazine racks in regular stores. So yeah, I think that the notion of queer comics as expressing extreme feeling, intense feelings, and intense feelings about what had been taboo subjects would characterize queer comics. I laughed out loud at Hothead Passan. And I, I want to emphasize for people, this is an important film. It's a meaningful film, but it's also just funny and fun and really enjoyable. Just a little more of the history. Through the 80s, queer comics benefited greatly from the growth of alternative newspapers and especially queer papers. Our younger listeners may not understand the importance of the alternative newspapers for the progressive left during the late 80s and early 90s. It was just a really an important thing. But they kind of fade. And as Alison Bechtel points out, the internet, Amazon, Barnes & Noble took a lot of wind out of the queer comic movement. And they typically took two approaches with zines, kind of the low-end photocopy yourself, and then graphic novels. And I'd love to talk a bit about the graphic novels because Stuck Rubber Baby and then, of course, uh, Fun Home are just these amazing works of art. And again, influenced a little bit by kind of the alternative, in this case, Spiegelman's Mouse. Can you talk a bit about that turn towards the graphic novel? No Straight Lines is braiding several different themes. One of them are the personal stories of the artist. One is the evolution of the means of production, as Marx would say. <laughs> In the case of what became the first queer graphic memoir, Fun Home, the film is also chronicling the evolution of an art form from little gag strips, as it were, one little frame story to a strip to finally to books, comic books, zines, and finally uh, a whole memoir, sometimes referred to as a graphic novel, but it, it's really her memoir. As a, it's a true story of her family. I didn't get a chance in the film to go into this adequately. There are more stories to be explored, but the impact of Spiegelman's mouse cannot be minimized. It was just monumental. And prior to that, Will Eisner's monumental work. So we have here these tomes, these volumes that inspired so many people to break through a whole form that they had been becoming experts at. And for Howard Cruz, it ended up tragically because while he had advanced from his publisher to do this long format book, it took him much longer than he expected. And he spent his money and then some. He and Eddie went bankrupt, actually. I think that's unfortunate. I think that had he undertaken that challenge 10 years later, he would have received a lot of accolade. And in fact, the book was just republished, reissued some 25 years later, and it's getting attention from the world of publishing that it well deserves. For Allison, it was a huge deal. 
the origin of the idea of Fun Home, the notion of telling her family story in this long format didn't come from her. It came from her facing what she thought was the end of her career as a cartoonist. And by the way, I think that's so important for younger viewers to hear this person who ultimately received the MacArthur Genius Award describe how at one point in their lives, and I forget how old she was then, let's say she was in her 30s, describe how they were poised to throw in the towel on this art form because of Barnes and Noble and, and the loss of livelihood that came with the internet. And actually it was her editor who said, hey, these graphic novels, these are, are hot, they're selling now. Why don't you do a graphic novel or a graphic memoir? And so began her exercise in telling her family story that not only was it New York Times bestseller for over 50 weeks and Time Magazine Book of the Year, but then morphed into a Broadway musical that won more Tonys than any musicals had won up to that point a couple of years ago. Just astonishing. What started as a simple stopgap measure to continue her livelihood as an independent artist then led to all this tremendous accolade. I think for me, what's really important, my goal is to empower some people who watch this film to feel free to tell their own stories. And I pick up the thread from where Marlon landed in Tongues Untied and landmark film that gave voice to the Black gay experience in America in a most powerful way. And oh, by the way, I get to digress here. In 2019, I had the fortune to have a brief conversation with the inimitable Billy Porter, one of the creators and writers and actors, directors of uh, the series Pose and many other creative adventures. He was at the Peabody Awards giving a Pesumas Award to Marlon for Tongues and Tide. And I went up to him and I asked him if he recalled when he watched Tongues and Tide. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, do I remember? I saw it when it was first broadcast on PBS and it changed my life. I was a young person and it gave me okay to be myself. And it gave me the okay to tell my story. And it gave me my voice. And we hugged and we cried. And I can't imagine any more purposeful reason for doing a documentary film than that. I think we could probably say that the focus of early queer comics was really on queer identity, sometimes in opposition to straight identity. Could you discuss the importance of intersectionality in queer comics today? Well, I think that the notion of intersectionality in comics today is a function of where we are as a people. We all have evolved. Young people today are different than generation before, despite the travails that we are facing with the extreme right. Nonetheless, there's so much more acceptance today than there had been before. So I don't think that queer comics are really much different than what's going on in the rest of the world. It's just very visceral. For example, as I referenced before, the kinds of images that we're seeing in web comics today are so vastly different than the kinds of images of queer people that Mary Wing set out to create or that Howard Cruz set out to create or the stories that Allison was trying to tell. In fact, when I handed my editor a folder with a selection of web comics to include in the film, she looked at them and said, we can't include these. Well, why not? They don't look queer. <laughs> and I said, yeah, exactly. And that is why they will be the final images in the film. Is there anyone you wanted to thank in particular? I created this film thanks to my producer on the project, Justin Hall, who is a comic book artist himself. He's a historian of comic books, and he published the first anthology of queer comics, No Straight Lines, who had the idea for doing a film, but had no idea what he was getting himself into when he invited me to <laughs> get involved in the project. And it's been a, a long road enormously gratifying one. I also need to say that we lost one of our pioneers in the process of making the film. The godfather of queer comics, Howard Cruz, passed away just prior to the completion of the film. And it pains me so much that he wasn't able to be present at the uh, premiere at Tribeca or at the Castro Theater, closing night at Frameline. He was somebody who really blazed a trail, not just for queer comics uh, and the art of queer comics, but for a whole generation of people who were devoted to his work. 
seems like the very definition of a gentle genius. By way of enticing me onto the project, Justin had encouraged me to attend the first international in-gathering of queer comic book artists in New York in 2015. And when I walked into that hallway and saw this older guy with balding head and a bit of a paunch and a button-down Ivy League collared shirt, engaged in conversation with this young person with chartreuse dyed hair and totally not categorized in any way, shape or form. And around them were the whole diversity of our people from the GQ gentlemen on one side to trans and non-binary, non-conforming. And the thing is, everybody was engaged together in conversation. It was an authentic intersectional moment that I was witnessing. And I was so profoundly moved by that, to see that connection and to see the joy and love uh, and appreciation amongst them all was totally counter to my assumptions of the stereotype of the curmudgeonly artist who's isolated in their attic and doesn't really want to be around people. That was really what motivated me to do the film. Do you have a project that's next for you? Just before COVID, I was very lucky to be awarded what's called a Eureka Fellowship for Artists by the Flash Hacker Foundation. I'm poised to get started working on a project with those amazing funds. (laughs) No strings attached. Get that. To be honest, the idea that I had submitted at the time now in the age of COVID doesn't feel as vital as it had at the time. Who gets to tell our stories and how those shape our perceptions of our lives and our history? The subject that I'd taken for that topic now feels a little stale. So I'm going to take the same concept, but apply it to a different subject area. So stay tuned. Well, Vivian, it's been a true delight and an education to listen to you. I I think it's extraordinary to hear about your process, frankly. Congratulations to you on creating a work that speaks to multiple generations. It's contemporary, it's historical, and it is its own true work of art. So congratulations on the film, and thank you so much for talking to, to us today. You're very kind, Ken. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. It's a delight and an honor, and I'm completely thrilled to be in conversation with you. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves? Yes. This is a a short film that completely blew me away with its simplicity and its power at the same time. It's called No Crying at My Table by a young Vietnamese-American filmmaker, Carol Wynn. Basically, she has her parents and sisters sit around the table and talk about their lives for the first time. This is an immigrant family from Vietnam, not comfortable talking about feelings and expressing themselves. It's so simple and yet so incredibly potent that I'm constantly talking about it with folks and hope that it will get much more attention.